Last September, Julie and I, while visiting with our kids down in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had the uh, unbelievable joy of going to Sight and Sound Theater. Have any of you ever been there? Yeah. Any of them? Yeah, a bunch of you. You know what kind of what it's like then, huh? We went to see Queen Esther. And how the Lord worked it out for us, I don't know. But we had seats right on the center aisle. I was sitting right on the edge. And one of the ushers, as we sat down, came and said, Now, it may be very tempting to try to give a high five to the actors as they go by or to try to pat one of the animals. Don't do it, or you, we will ask you to leave the theater. But we were right there and watching. It was unbelievable to watch that and to see that whole, the pageantry of it. And uh, as I came home from that, and then thinking about being here with you, it seemed like there was something in that story that needed to be said for you and me today. For such a time as this, you saw that. You, if you've read the story of Hadassah, you know that phrase that is there in that story. Uh, this morning, as we embark on the, our first Sunday without a senior pastor, um, I believe there are elements of Esther's story that can guide us in the coming months. I think there's things there that we can all learn, and we'll be better for it. Those of you who have listened to me for a long time know that when I stand to preach, the first thing I always want to do, my first goal, is to faithfully present to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's number one on my list of what I want to do. My second goal is always to try to encourage you. Some pastors are teachers. I'm not. Some pastors are evangelists. I'm not. Some pastors are scholars. You know I am not that. Some pastors want you to take your pulse when they preach. If you're alive, that's good enough for me, okay? <laughs> I want to encourage you. I want you to see Jesus Christ. I want you to move forward in this Christian life. And that's going to be different for every one of us as I try to stand and preach. I want you to see the joy in the Christian life. And this is not moving, Mike. There we go. And have you ever heard me say this before? Oh, only a few thousand times. I want you to see that Jesus loves you today as if there was no one else in all the world to love. That is so much a part of who I am and what I want you to understand as we come together for worship. Okay, so I checked my notes. And I've been preaching for 51 years. That's a long time. Yeah, time to sit down, right? Okay, forget it. Um, and I, my notes are really thorough. I have never, ever, ever preached from Esther. I can't believe it. This is my first effort trying to bring a message from Esther. Now, I've quoted many times in sermons that little phrase that Esther's cousin Mordecai uses, and will say it so many times, but... Um, 
I want you to see some of this stuff. The setting of the story. Let's just go through the story. I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, and we'll see where it goes. And uh, I'm going to ask you right now, too, if you haven't read the book of Esther in some time, it's only 10 chapters. It'll probably take you, it took me 20 minutes to read it. I read it again yesterday morning. It took me 20 minutes, uh, yesterday afternoon. It took me 20 minutes to do it. And it's probably about what it'll take you to, unless you're faster than me, and you probably are. The setting is the capital city of the Persian Empire, Susa. Susa was probably the most advanced city in the ancient world. It's the 5th century BC. The Persian Empire reached from southern Europe all the way down around the eastern end of the Mediterranean, all of Egypt, all the way over to Ethiopia, all the way over through what we now know as you know, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, all the way to India. That's a pretty good-sized chunk of turf. There was a six-month-long feast going on. Xerxes I, that's his Persian name. When you read it in Scripture, the Hebrews call him a different name. I don't know why. I have no idea why the scripture calls him a different name. But Ahasuerus. Xerxes is easier. And he has dominated all of this portion of the globe. And he is throwing a feast for all of his nobles and leaders throughout the whole kingdom. They've come together. At the point that our story picks up, it looks like he's at least six months into this feast. And it also, the Hebrew scripture is consistent, uh, uh, just, just so you know, the story is also in Hebrew scripture as it is in the Christian Bible, okay? It's in their canon of scripture too. And the implication in all of it is, uh, okay, you know I'm the chaplain up at the racetrack. I cannot say that any of the fans up there are drunk. I am not a medical person. They tell me I can't say somebody's drunk. I can say they're overbeveraged. That's an observation I can make. Xerxes and his men were overbeveraged. And Xerxes decides in his overbeveraged state that it might be a good idea to uh, have his queen come and dance before all of these men. He makes this demand to Queen Vashti to come in and dance. I don't know what kind of dance it was, but I don't think it was going to be a good dance. And she says, Buster, I am a queen by birth. I am royal heritage. I am descended from kings and queens. You're king because you are a mighty warrior, and you knocked the old king off. You weren't born to it. And if you think I am going to degrade myself in front of all of these guys, you, are, you can think again. Well, in his overbeveraged state, he now says to his leaders, who is his advisors, and their names are there in scriptures, who they were. There's a group of them that, that come up. There's, I think, five of them, maybe six. I can't remember now. And he says to them, what do I do? And, you know, my, I've told you before, my favorite verse in the New Testament that literally translates from the Greek as this, Peter, having nothing to say, said. Let that sink in a little bit. 
that is often the way I am, having nothing to say, I open my mouth and let everybody know I've got nothing to say. Well, here are these advisors, and, and the king says, what do I do? And, uh, you know, one of them comes up and scratches his head and he goes, um, you know, if this gets out that the queen has defied the king, every wife in the whole kingdom is going to defy their husband. What's going to happen then? And that's what the scripture says. Ladies, you have a lot of power. And so the advisors say, well, you need to depose her, take her off the throne. Okay, that's a great idea in his overbeverage state. He gets rid of his queen. And then he thinks a few days later, wait a minute, what do I do now? In these same guys who have nothing to say said, um, let's have the first Persian beauty contest. That's not the words they use in scripture, but that's what they say. They say, bring in all of the most beautiful virgins from all over your kingdom, from Italy, from Greece, from Ethiopia, to India, to Iraq. You just bring in all of these beautiful girls and you pick. Well, that sounded like a pretty good deal to him. It says in scripture about Esther, now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. That's what scripture says about her. Ever seen anybody like that? I think I must have seen someone like that when I was probably about 13 years old, maybe 14. I can, I, ladies and gentlemen, I can still picture it. I was sitting out on the deck yesterday and I'm thinking, oh man, I can still see this. I felt so stupid. I pedaled my bicycle down to the Cliftondale post office to get some stamps for my mother or to put something out in the mail. I don't know what I was doing there, but I was probably 13, maybe 14, and I'm standing in line, and there's a, a girl in front of me who's maybe eight or 10 years older than me. And as she turned around and looked at me, she gave me the most beautiful smile, and she was beautiful of form and face. <laughs> And after I got done staring, the guy behind the window says, uh, anytime you can get your chin off your, off your chest and you can do anything other than stutter, what do you want? <laughs> well, I think that's what Esther must have been like, that everybody went, wow, and looked at her. But I want to go a little different direction for just a minute. You know that names have meanings, don't you? Names, your, your name, like my name. John means graced of God. Julie and I named our three children specifically over the names that we chose for them. Our oldest is Krista. That means follower of Christ. And as we named that child, we prayed that her whole life she would be. Our second, Kara, is, means beloved or dear. And Timothy means one who honors God. That's why we named our kids. There was a reason to it. It wasn't like we just threw Scrabble letters in a bag and pulled them out, which is the way so many kids seem to be named these days. I didn't say that, excuse me. But how about this young woman we're talking about? She, her name as a Hebrew is Hadassah. Now, I had to work on that one because Hadassah means myrtle tree. And I had to look up, well, what on earth does that mean? I did not know it till I did some research 
the bark of the myrtle tree has been used for centuries as a medicinal aid for healing purposes. Isn't that fascinating? Just kind of plant that in the back of your head for a minute. Hadassah, healing. There might be something in the story that rings true here. But she takes a Persian name. And the reason she takes a Persian name because, well, we'll get into that in a second. Her Persian name is Esther, which means shining star. That interesting to you as well? It is to me. Myrtle tree, healing, shining star. There's some stuff there. Well, she immediately became the favorite of perhaps the hundreds of young women um, who had been kidnapped of the keeper of the harem, Haggai. Uh, her cousin, Mordecai, who was responsible for it because her parents had died, uh, had implored her not to tell her Hebrew name for two reasons. One, she would likely have been, could likely have been executed for coming into the palace as a Hebrew. More than likely, because she was a Hebrew, she would no longer be part of the procession of young women coming to be potential queens, but she would probably be thrown into those group of women who would be court prostitutes. That is the most likely. And so Mordecai says, don't go there. Don't let them know you're a Jew. But shining star she is. And possibly for months, the merry-go-round of young women are ushered into Xerxes, and he finally selects Hadassah. He selects Esther. We've got to fill in some gaps here. There's pieces in Scripture that tell us some things, but we just it, it's almost all there, but not quite, maybe. It seems like her cousin, Mordecai, is just incredibly possessive and does not want anything to happen to this girl. And it seems like he gets a job at the king's court. It seems like he's at the gate. Maybe he's something like an accountant or, or, or something along that line. And it seems like it must have been one night he was working some overtime and nobody else is around or nobody thinks there's anybody around. And there's a couple of people who plot assassination of the king. And Mordecai hears it. Mordecai gets a note to his cousin, Esther, inside the palace, and says, you've got to let the king know. Well, what would it care? I mean, you'd almost have to think that Mordecai would think, oh, good deal, king's going to die, my cousin will be free. No. Um, ladies and gentlemen, what happens when you depose a king? You kill all the family. I mean, it's the way it's always been for millennia. It's always been that way. I mean, as recent as uh, the Russian Revolution, what happened to Tsar Nicholas? They didn't just kill him, they killed his wife and his kids too, right? They didn't want anybody there. We've heard it on the news over the last few weeks about what's going on in, in, uh, Ukraine, in Ukraine, that um, they want to get Zelensky and then his wife, his children, and his brothers. They want to kill them all. It's, this is the way it's always been. So Mordecai knows that if they take out the king, they're also going to take out my cousin. He's desperate to make sure this doesn't happen. 
He gets the message through. There's the plot. He overhears the plot. He warns Esther. The traitors are hung. And the king forgets about it. Comes up important in a few more minutes, okay? Well, the feasting and the extravagance is costing Xerxes unbelievably. And uh, we've skipped by the whole part about Esther being selected as queen, but she's queen by now. And uh, things are moving along. But the expense of running the kingdom is just over the top. And he goes to these same advisors again. Remember these guys, same guys who have nothing to say said? And they come to the point of saying, uh, you know, the king says, how are we going to raise more money? I need more money, and I'm not getting enough. And he's still fighting military campaigns. And one of them says, one of your provincial governors, and there's only one of them, everybody else seems to be as poor as you, but there's one guy out there, man, he's rolling in the dough. It's just everything is going his way. Everything is great for him. How he's extorting all of this money from the peasants, oh, we don't know, but he does. His name is Haman. And so the king asked for Haman to be brought in. I think when I was a kid and I read that Haman was an agagite, I thought it was some sort of stone. Maybe you do too. I don't know. But what's an agagite? If you don't know, I'll tell you. If you go back into 1 Samuel, you read a story that the prophet Samuel had gone to King Saul and said to Saul, you are to wipe out completely the family, the lineage, everybody of King Agag. Remember that story? But Saul, in his human wisdom, not using God's wisdom, says, no, wait a minute. There are some pretty good people there. He's got a lot of wealth, and he's told to destroy the wealth. He's told to destroy the animals. He's told to destroy everything. And he decides, nah, I'm not going to do that. And it seems like, well, no, it seems like what happened was some of the family of Haman escaped. Now we're here with Haman, who's a descendant of Agag, and who does he hate most on the face of the earth? The Jews. Because they had killed so many of his family. Just remember that a little bit. First Samuel 15.9. You can read the story there. Haman hatches a plot. Haman rises from this provincial governor to something we might want to call prime minister of all of the Persian Empire. Scripture tells us that on his hand he had a signet ring, the king's signet ring, meaning he could write decrees, put his wax seal on it, and put his king's seal on that. The king wouldn't even know about it, and he could just do whatever he wanted. He had free reign. He writes a decree. I'm going to get even with the Jews. Then on a date about two months out from when he writes it, he has messengers sent through the entire kingdom everywhere. 
and decrees are posted on the walls everywhere that says on a particular day, one single day, every Jew is to be killed. He's not going to send army out to do it. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He says, Patrick, if you have a Jew who lives next door to you, if you kill him, you can take his house. You can take his animals. You can take his money. You can take everything he had. All you got to do is kill him. That, obviously, he thought would appeal to a lot of people. It's not going to take an army. It only takes a greedy person. And we can wipe out all the Jews on one day. Mordecai sees the poster up on the wall, reads it, goes into mourning, sackcloth and ashes, gets a message to his, to his cousin in the palace, and Esther learns of the plot. And so, oh, there's so much to it. I, I, you've got to read the story. I'm not going to tell you all the bits of the story. It's just there's so much of it there. She learns of the story, and she comes up with her own way of trying to make this anything but death for herself and her family. And she has Haman comes to a banquet. I think I've got some of it in here. But, you know, the verse, I put it up there as the verse, uh, and it's that. Who knows, but you have been chosen queen for such a time as this. Esther intercedes with the king. She has a little banquet for two people, Haman and the king. She has to do two of them. It's not really sure why there's two, but there are two. But between the two banquets, it seems like, Xerxes can't sleep one night. Do you ever have nights when you can't sleep? Do you ever get up and read? It says in Scripture that Xerxes had one of his servants go down into the annals of the Medes and Persians and bring up one of the scrolls and read it to him. He figured by reading that, that would make him really sleepy. And he reads the piece to the king that says, this is the most fun twist to this whole story. I mean, it's, this is, Hollywood couldn't do it this good. He reads the piece where there was the plot, the assassination plot, a year, two, three years before. We don't know how long ago it was. And the name in there, it says that the, there was a Jew by the name of Mordecai who was the one who saved the king's life. And Xerxes says to the servant, uh, what was done for Mordecai? And he says, nothing. What do you mean nothing? Nothing was done. Next morning, king is musing on that. And the first person that comes in to see him in the morning is his prime minister, Haman, who's plotting to kill all the Jews. Like I said, Hollywood couldn't do it any better. Haman comes in. And... the king says, what is to be done for the man who the king honors? And Haman says, that's me. I'm the good guy. I'm getting all this money for him. I'm just doing all this. Who, what is to be done for the man that the king honors? And what does Haman say? Um, get one of your royal robes, one with the purple and gold, and put that on the man. 
And then your royal white stallion, you know that unbelievably big, beautiful horse of yours, put him on that, then get one of your top officials and have him guide that horse along and say, this is what the king does for the man that he honors. And Xerxes says, you got it. Go get Mordecai, get my robe, put him on the horse, and you lead him through the city. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? It's unbelievable how that all comes to place. I mean, I just try to picture it. I just hardly can. You might keep quiet for such a time. This is what Mordecai says to his, to his cousin. Let's read the whole thing, the whole scripture. And I've got it from the International Children's Bible to make it as simple as I can for me. You might keep quiet at this time. Then someone else will help and save the Jews. But you and your father's family will all die. And who knows, you may have been chosen queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this answer to Mordecai. Go and get all the Jews in Susa together. For my sake, give up eating. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my servant girls will also give up eating. Then I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I, if I die, I die. When I thought about this story, I can just see so many things in it for you and me right now in our transition period here with the new pastor. I just see so many things. For such a time as this, prayer, fasting. What's it mean for you and me for such a time as this? You know, really, we've just gone through two and a half years of COVID. Things are crazy with some families. Things are crazy in our world right now. I mean, they are really crazy in our world. What about our church as we look to the future? You know, I made a statement when I was talking about doing some of the maintenance things here on the church. But here's, I, you're going to hear me say this more than once because I've already said it about 20 times to different people. I am praying, I really mean this, that there's some person out there that the Lord has already laying their hand on for this church. That there is somebody out there when they hear that this church is open, they're going to salivate and say, I want to go there. Maybe it's some guy who's going to watch in three weeks' time the NASCAR race at Loudoun. And they're going to say, oh, Lord, you, you talking to me about ministry in Loudoun? That just maybe something will come that's out of the, out of the unexpected that somebody somewhere is going to salivate over the thought of coming here. Esther has told us the story of an ordinary person who fulfills an extraordinary challenge in an unlikely context. She's a woman in a male-dominated culture. She is a Jew in a non-Jewish culture, and yet she succeeds. We've got some challenges in front of us. God raised her up at exactly the right time for the good of others. What is God doing with you and me right now? In our transition time, 
Will you listen for God's voice and for such a time as this, step into whatever task he asks of you? Pray for us for a bit. That phrase that was there, you know, to hear the voice of God and do his will, whatever it is. Father, I ask this morning that as we, that maybe we've been challenged, maybe we've been encouraged, maybe we've been helped, maybe we've, maybe we've stumbled. But Lord, your will be done. Father, I pray for every one of us here this morning, the kids, the adults, and ask, Lord, that you would draw us together in these days for such a time as this, that we might see your glory. We might see something miraculous happen in this church at this time for your will to be done. Lord, I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.